0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com
1: The thoughts of all men arise from the darkness. If you were the movement of your soul and the cause of that movement precedes you, then how could you ever call your thoughts your own? How could you be anything other than a slave to the darkness that comes before?
0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today's episode is mostly going to be an interview with the Canadian author R. Scott Baker, best known for his second apocalypse saga. Robert, how would you characterize that?
1: Well, I think that quote that I read there from uh, his first book in the series, uh, The Darkness That Comes Before, sums it up uh, uh, rather nicely. I was first turned on to the work of R. Scott Baker back in 2007, and I hadn't read anything quite like it at the time, and I, I really haven't read anything quite like his work since then. His first novel, The Darkness That Comes Before, casts the reader into a dark fantasy world that invokes the, the holy wars of our own world, Tolkien-esque evil, factional infighting worthy of Frank Herbert's dune, and a deep
0: philosophical core. And we're actually going to be getting into not so much his science fiction and fantasy, but a recent philosophy paper of his. That sounds kind of odd. Though we will discuss his science fiction and fantasy a fair amount. Don't don't worry about that if you're a fan. But we're really going to be focusing on our Scott Baker's recent paper on alien philosophy, published this year in the Journal of Consciousness Studies. Yes, you heard that right. Alien philosophy. Uh we will get back to that in just a little bit. Yes, on alien philosophy,
1: this is a a, a wonderful thought experiment and sort of reverse engineering of human philosophy via the consideration of a fictional convergian alien species and what sort of philosophical systems they might create to make sense of their own existence.
0: Yeah. So in the past, we've actually speculated about possible characteristics of alien life forms. We did this in that episode, Grizzly Bears from Outer Space. Do you remember that? Oh, yes. Yeah. Like, would aliens have eyes? Would they have of hands how large are intelligent life forms generally there was a there was a paper back then that tried to use some statistical analysis to say you know it's really more likely given certain planet sizes and gravity and stuff that aliens are going to be pretty big <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, this is always a tricky game because if you are a reasonable person, you have to admit that if alien life exists somewhere out there, there's every chance that it could just totally defy your expectations. We, we don't always know what to expect. We can't be certain about much, but it is always fun to play the game. Okay. If we just start with a few fairly safe assumptions, what can we deduce about what types of life are possible? And one of those fairly safe assumptions is that whatever alien life exists, it's going to be the product of evolution by natural selection. Uh, I think it would be incredibly surprising if it turned out to not be the product of evolution by natural selection, meaning it's going to be a system that somehow encodes information, makes copies of itself through that information, and the copies survive and make their own copies at differential rates. And from these humble premises, you can actually start to make a lot of interesting guesses about what types of life are more possible or more common than others. And so we've already tried this with biological and ecological traits in the past. But in this new paper, R. Scott Baker chases this this phenotype problem really deep he goes on to guess what are the philosophical projects that intelligent alien life forms would wonder about what big questions would they share with us what hang-ups are they really likely to dwell upon Yeah, it's a fascinating paper, and
1: if you want to uh, read it in full, I'll include a link to it on the landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. And I should also point out that the first six books in the Second Apocalypse Saga, including the first trilogy, are currently out there in just about any reading format you desire. And this summer, R. Scott Baker brings uh, it all home. He's going to follow up last year's The Great Ordeal with The Unholy Consult, which is going to be out July 11th from Overlook Press. And if you're not ready to commit to a multi-book series, his standalone, novels neuropath and disciple of the dog are out there as well
0: though robert i know you warned me about neuropath well as
1: as, as we'll explore in the interview uh, baker himself warns everybody about neuropath so be sure to tune in for that section of the uh, conversation just a few quick notes about this episode. First up, this is a phone interview. We're in Atlanta, and Scott chatted with us from the wilds of Canada in the midst of a thunderstorm. So uh, everything's not going to be uh, necessarily as crisp as it usually is, but uh, we think the content is uh, is definitely worth uh, sticking around for. Secondly, I bring up a couple of details from the second apocalypse saga uh, that I think bear quick explanation. First, there's the Inkarai. Now, this is a hedonistic alien species that descends upon the world in ancient times, you <laughs> Undying, They're devoted to to selfish indulgence, limitless pleasure, and a cataclysmic scheme to shield themselves from judgment. And then there are the non-men. This is an all-male race of humanoids that essentially serve as the the waning elder race, the elves of uh, Baker's world, only far darker and, uh, interestingly, inhuman in many respects, both in body and in mind. And finally, there's a tiny bit of cursing in this episode, but it's polite Canadian cursing, and uh, we bleeped it all out for you.
0: All right, well I'd say without further delay, maybe we should get into our conversation with our Scott Baker.
1: Hey, Scott, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Uh, Thanks for taking time out of your day to talk with us here about uh, your new paper on alien philosophy, as well as uh, uh, your works of fiction, which uh, I know personally have meant a lot to me over the years. I'm a a big fan of the Second Apocalypse Saga. I loved uh, uh, Neuropath uh, and Disciple of the Dog as well. So uh, we want to welcome you to the show. And uh, I believe uh, Joe has the first question here uh, related to on alien philosophy.
0: Well, actually, I mean, I guess we should start just uh, by Scott, is there anything you'd like to tell our audience about yourself? Just introduce yourself and then second we'll, we'll get to the meat of the paper.
2: I'm a farm boy who grew up in southwestern Ontario and uh, ended up uh, falling in love with uh, Lord of the Rings and Conan the Barbarian at a uh, preposterously young age and just never grew up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> What's your opinion on the Millius movie?
2: It has to be the one uh, written by Oliver Stone, yeah. Oh, yeah. Ernie. Yeah.
0: <laughs> All right, so uh, we wanted to get into the idea of your, your paper about alien philosophy. Could you just start by, as succinctly as you can, explaining what your uh, motive for writing this paper was and what your basic conclusions are?
2: Okay, so, I mean, I kind of backed into uh, philosophy. Um, my original my original degree program I took at university was uh, languages and literature, and it quickly became apparent to me that uh, I was uh, barking up the wrong tree. And so the question for me was basically how to transition, you know, my literature degree into uh, something more philosophical. So I did a critical theory graduate degree, and in that case, I found myself knee deep in all these philosophical traditions. 10,000 different interpretations of the same bloody thing. I think I, the best way to put it is uh, dismay. There's just so much confusion. It seemed like there was so much obvious obfuscation. I uh, sort of quickly came to the conclusion that something profoundly <laughs> wrong lay at the heart of uh, traditional philosophy. And uh, I just endeavored to be as honest and as ruthlessly skeptical as I could and try to figure out what that something wrong was. And on alien philosophy is basically the answer I've been able to come up with after about 20 years of studying and researching the topic, both in formal university contexts and uh, and on my own. And the idea in a nutshell is simply that we human beings simply did not evolve the capacity to reflect upon ourselves and our experience in any way, shape or form that would allow us to answer theoretical questions regarding you know our experience. And when you really look at you know the question empirically in terms of cognitive neuroscience, for instance, and you see the way in which the brain constantly, winnows information, constantly just selects a little bit of information from this process, a little information from that process, a little information from that process. You discover that the brain really is a giant bottleneck machine that is bent on selecting only what it needs. And on Alien Philosophy, it gives us a, a, a sort of picture of how we can understand that bottleneck machine such that it explains the morass Of uh, traditional philosophy of mind, our, you know, ethical inability to figure out what the hell is going on inside of our own heads.
0: So in the paper you, you make this distinction you just talked about and you, you mentioned the idea of causal cognition versus heuristic cognition, right? Uh, yes. basically having a true understanding of the workings of things in, in a sort of deep information way versus having a, you know, on the fly good enough understanding of things that gets us through everyday life and that we're constantly using the latter to try to get at the former. Um yeah. a question I sort of wonder about is the former to me sounds like it is best executed in science. If we're trying to get causal cognition, it's when we, you know, put these tools on our inquiries, like scientific investigatory tools. And so does that leave any room for philosophy? Do you think that there is really any good philosophy to be done, or really is should it just be science and everything outside of science is misapplying these heuristic models we have
2: um, yeah i mean i think there's definitely good philosophy uh, i mean uh, um it's not the the death of philosophy or theoretical speculation i mean there's no way to kill that um what for me it signals the end of is a certain type of philosophizing which just happens to be the majority of philosophizing since the ancient greeks which is the idea of actually using heuristic cognition to try to get to the truth of heuristic cognition using these shortcuts, these ways of actually avoiding knowledge of what's actually going on to solve problems as a means of getting at what's going on. That's the philosophy that does that is the philosophy that's caused the bulk of our, uh, our confusion today.
0: So how, how much of philosophy do you think is really just sort of uh, backward looking ex post facto justification for our biases?
2: <laughs> so the way I look at it is you know, we have this capacity to metacognize. We have these uh, ancestral abilities to basically pick things from the stream of experience and think about them and change our behavioral responses to the world on the basis of them. So think about Christmas with your relatives, you know, everyone has that family member who says something (laughs) that you just, oh, you got to say something about it. But you know, if you do, it's going to ruin the whole night. (laughs) And that's a great example of metacognition at work. You know, you're going to say something and then all of a sudden, wait a second, Scott, he's an asshole. Everyone knows he's an asshole. You don't need to tell everybody he's an asshole. If you tell everybody he's an asshole, then the whole night's ruined, right? Your reproductive chances go flying out the window. (laughs) That sounds weird, doesn't it? But metacognition consists of a suite of practical tools. There's no way in the world that we evolved the metacognitive capacity we needed to do much more than a handful of practical things on the fly. And what philosophical reflection does is it it basically takes those tools, repurposes them, and asks them to solve questions. There's just simply no way they could possibly solve them. But since we lack the ability to even see how little ability we have when it comes to my cognition, We have no sense of constraints or limits or whatever. And so we're confronted by this constant illusion of transparency. It seems like, yes, if only I think hard enough on this. Yes, if only I get my concepts arranged just right. Yes, if only I abandon the metaphysics of presence. Yes, if only I abandon uh, uh, the mirror of nature. On and on and on it goes. Everybody thinks that there's a way to use philosophical reflection to solve Or the problem of human experience. It's all bunk.
0: (laughs) So, uh, Scott, in the paper, you you seem, and the way you just described it now, you definitely do seem to be trying to use this idea of imagining what alien philosophy looks like in order to reverse engineer our own human philosophy to better understand Mm -hmm. how we've arrived at our philosophical traditions. But I'm also just really interested in that speculative project, trying to literally imagine what an information processing organism orbiting a faraway star might think about. What hard problems would they encounter and how would they deal with them? And Mm -hmm. so I wonder if I could ask you just a a few crazy kinds of uh, questions that you don't even address in the paper. Uh, sure. I started off thinking, like, you know, would the, could you imagine that there would be an alien Hegel or an alien Wittgenstein? But these are kind of stupid questions. Because I think these philosophers necessarily exist in a tradition, if you know what I mean, like they're reacting to all the philosophers that came before them. And so it's sort of silly to try to imagine if that history of philosophy would be recreated on other planets, but you can imagine other fields of philosophy and how they would be created. Oh. So I'm I'm trying to think like, what would alien meta ethics look like? Is there anything that we could guess? Uh, that that would form the basis of how aliens would think about, you know, what their where their sense of right and wrong comes from.
2: Like this is a really hard question to ask. I mean, part of the reason why I, I, I took so much care to uh, underscore how how um, really, you know, plausibility of alien philosophy was all I was after. It's just sim- simply because asking the question of alien philosophy earnestly, you know um, is really difficult simply because you got to assume so much convergence to just to just get off the ground I mean you have to that they use language in similar ways that we uh, as we use language for instance um, so if you grant all that if you grant convergence as I call them in the uh, paper then I think meta ethics would look like a giant mess, the way meta ethics <laughs> looks like in contemporary philosophy. Just simply because, you know, when it comes to where we stand in these various super complicated systems that nature has us pinned in, we just have no access to the information we need. So, what we really have to rely on is. is Basically, these blind guesses—you know, these simple heuristics, these little tricks—that have, for whatever reason, um, preserved our ancestors in the past. Now, these tricks are just simply—they're uh, uh, literally invisible to us, even though they actually are the foundation of guiding our behavior through these super complicated natural, natural environments. Now, any creature like a human is stuck in the exact same informational bind. They're stuck in a, a, a shallow information environment. They have these tools for picking out those handles, those features of the environment that actually help them get along or get on or get it on, um, (laughs) but they actually have no way of isolating those simple heuristics as simple heuristics, no way of understanding where they stand in these superordinate systems. They're just, they're blind, and even worse, they're blind to their blindness. So every time these aliens would attempt to solve ethical questions, what is ethics, they're going to run into the same set. Of illusions and problems that beset human philosophers. They're going to confuse the loaded landscape of ethical concepts as being a, a sort of autonomous system, of, as being all there is. They're going to think that they've actually solved something <laughs> even though all it takes is another person to ask the exact same question to arrive at, uh, in some cases, radically different answer, following what seem to be very similar intuitions. So those two things, I think they're going to uh, uh, are going to strand them as effectively as we've been stranded
0: by meta ethics. I can imagine a skeptical objection to what you're saying mm-hmm. um, that would be, OK, you're right that we are by nature, shallow information consumers. We don't have deep knowledge about the world in order to get along in, in a natural setting. But you can definitely look at the way we've leveraged the weak tools we do have to do amazing things in, say, science and technology. Like, we can build an international space station, and that has nothing to do with our ground-level survival and reproduction. Uh, we've just managed to sort of bootstrap up some very basic survival tools into incredible products why would you think that we couldn't do the same thing with these hard problems like uh like metaethics or natural philosophy or understanding the mind that we do with science and technology?
2: Well, I I mean I actually think that you know a lot of the say you know norms of science I actually see these things as technology. I mean I see them as basically ways of turning you know spinning tools out of our own brains, if you will. I mean the idea, the idea, isn't that we can't use heuristic cognition in novel ways. I mean, we literally—I think—we quite literally evolved to do exactly what philosophers do, which is just simply try to, you know, recast, repurpose our existing cognitive capacities in order to solve um, different kinds of problems. The problem with metaethics, in particular, is it doesn't really have anything. To do with that process, so ethical thought has given us a lot of great ideas that we've been able to institutionalize in ways that have been tremendously, tremendously beneficial um, to uh, humanity. But there's no way of actually, you know, realizing that that's the case short of putting those tools into application. I mean, I would argue that. The type of you know, norm uh, tool making that humans have just done so fantastically well is actually a completely different process than the process that uh, underwrites meta-ethical thought. I mean, problems get solved when we actually discover a new simple heuristic that allows us to get along with each other in some way, shape or form. But when you actually ask the fundamental nature of ethical thought and you begin by looking at all these terms, all this norm talk as referring to posits that actually play some role in some kind of economy, a transcendental economy or a normative economy or an anomalous economy or an autonomous economy. Outside of the circuit of nature, no one's gotten anywhere. (laughs) No one's answered anything. I mean, all the dilemmas that uh, confronted the ancient Greeks are still confronting modern philosophers today. And that's just simply because it constitutes an attempt to apply these simple heuristics not to practical problems, in the real world of politics in social interaction but to the theoretical problem of ethics itself
0: all right now it's time to take a quick break and when we come back more of our conversation with our scott baker so maybe i've got one more and then i'm going to throw back to robert here uh so I, i wanted to go to a footnote in your paper about alien philosophy Um, You say that because we uh, evolved in ecologies that didn't give us access to deep information, you know, we just knew enough to get along. You write, quote, my fear is that the provision of this information is likely to crash the effectiveness of many of our tools. A good deal of my fiction is devoted to exploring different crash scenarios. So I wondered if you could explain a little bit more what you mean about the idea of a crash scenario and how you explore this.
2: So when you understand that the bulk of our cognition is heuristic yeah. um, that it really relies on these kinds of guesses that we're making with the lack of any sort of deep understanding of you know the actual physical structure of uh, the environment around us. you realize that that guesswork depends upon an invariant background. so a perfect example would be AI for instance. so human beings we evolved to manage an unbelievable amount of complexity we we evolved to solve the most complicated systems that we know of in the universe basically each other without actually knowing the first thing about what's going on in brains or or uh, uh ecologies or or what what have you so heuristics solve by taking things for granted in their environments so that means the only cognition can properly function is if those things that it takes for granted actually obtain in its environments. So if you look at that uh, last year, there was the first fatality uh, ever attributed to a uh, self-driving car, and uh, I think it was a Tesla. Um, and the unfortunate fellow was driving on an incline, and a truck was crossing his path he was watching harry potter on his dashboard he had his autopilot on his car now the autopilot actually read forward and the white truck crossed what was actually white sky this is what they think happened and as a result the truck's trailer queued open space to the computer and so the car just drove right underneath the truck trailer um That's exactly what happens when the environment doesn't cooperate with a heuristic problem-solving system. If that system cannot discriminate between white truck, white sky, then it just sees sky. And so that's actually a perfect example of a crash space uh, where you have a cognitive system that requires the environment to be a certain way in order to properly solve a problem. When the environment is changed or varies in a way that it cannot accommodate, then you literally have a car crash in that case. Now that obtains as much for self-driving cars as it does for human social cognition. So my big fear with AI generally is that you and I evolved to solve each other um, over literally the history of life on this planet. We're enormously complicated And yet we're so finely attuned to one another that we can make unbelievable predictions as to each other's behavior and reliability and so forth. Now, what happens when you take that ecology and you start injecting all these little artificial agencies that are literally designed to cue your heuristic social cognitive systems out of school? right? For some sort of commercial advantage. Now, all of a sudden, you find human beings using these systems that are exquisitely designed to make sense of other human beings. Now we're using these systems to make sense of machines that have literally been designed (laughs) to empty our wallets or, you know, sway our votes or what have you. Now that's a crash space. And it's a tremendously significant craft space because what it means is that human beings are going to be able to trust their social cognitive systems, that suite of simple heuristics we use to solve the monstrous complexity of each other. We're no, we're going to be able to trust that less and less and less moving forward because the environment, the invariant background that it's adapted to solve, no longer exists. So really what my big fear is, is uh, that we're looking at the destruction of the human cognitive habitat, that uh, all this stuff that people are celebrating, Mark Zuckerberg, even President Obama, uh, um really is the beginning of the end of uh, the ability of human beings to make sense of each other, the world, themselves, what have you.
0: Uh, Robert, I know uh, some of these ideas come up in some questions you had about the fiction, right? Oh yes. Um, I, I, at this point, I'd want to jump ahead to um, a question I had for later, but I, th- I think it
1: ties in here. So, your um, your, your book, Neuropath, is a, a wonderfully scientifically disturbing thriller. A sort of uh, near-future, neuroscientifically charged psychological thriller, for those who haven't read it. What you've just described here instantly made me think of uh, the semantic apocalypse. Is that the same concept, or is that uh, a related concept? That's the same concept, yeah.
2: Okay. Uh, That's the the semantic apocalypse. I kind of see it as having two stages to it. I mean, the first stage is actually on-alien philosophy. I mean, the first stage is just clearing away all these philosophical conceptions of meaning. And um, coming to understand the practical nature of uh, uh, of uh, intentional cognition and then the big problem with semantic apocalypse has to do with the slow degradation of the environments that intentional cognition requires in order to function reliably, right? And uh, it's the depth of meaning in every sense.
0: When you say the intentional environment there, you mean reasoning on the basis of inferring the intentions of others, sort of what Daniel Dennett would call the intentional stance?
2: I'm actually greatly enjoying uh, Dennett's book right now, his latest book. There's no intentional stance in in my position. Uh, um, There's no uh, uh, perspectives or anything like that. I mean, intentional cognition just simply means basically all the machinery in your brain. That enables you to solve the behavior of other biological life in your uh, in, in your vicinity to like incredibly uh, rarefied uh, extents right um, and when you look in t- when you look at uh, human behavior uh, in particular, see the problem with the intentional stance is that it 's actually an attempt to use intentional cognition to theorize intentional cognition, and that 's the big reason why Dennett has such a hard time actually selling his position to uh, um, other philosophers of mine who want intentionality and in meaning to be a thing, to be something <laughs> right. in the world. Uh, um, I share much of Dennett's uh, of, uh, view, but I don't see how the intentional stance has anything to do <laughs> with the parts I share. <laughs> Your original question had to do with uh, just simply what I mean by intentional cognition. And once again, it's simply the machinery in our head. That's, you know, what gets taken out by a stroke. That's what gets, you know, pathologically attenuated in cases of autism. That's, you know, what uh, gets degraded in dementia. You know, that's where the action is. And uh, um, I think that's all we need to, to really get a theoretical grasp uh on what's going on with meaning
1: in your uh, second apocalypse saga an alien race known as the incroy play uh, a, a crucial role did on alien philosophy in part stem from trying to understand their perspective and yes or no how does one try to think like uh, the people of emptiness
2: how does one try to think like an incroy wow <laughs> um, i've tried to actually get into their headspace on several occasions i find it really difficult I mean the problem is is that you know our own sort of experience of our own first person is so unbelievably specific to our biology and to our history that that uh, um, as soon as you try to actually think of an alien way of thought it ceases to make sense mm-hmm. and I mean on alien philosophy is tied to the inkroy not not so much as uh, 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 exploration. Okay, so the Inkaroi are not so much you know, the object of non-alien philosophy as they are kind of uh, the uh, cipher for the ultimate significance of alien philosophy. Because the ultimate significance of alien philosophy is that you know, once we understand that thought is ultimately material, physical, And just simply part of all the natural processes going on in our environment. Nothing ontologically extraordinary. Then we realize that this boundary that we've just, we're just creeping up to and are getting ready to cross, where we have literally gained the ability to control physical processes at unbelievably small scales, cellular scales this point where our own biology is becoming technology, Um, if on alien philosophy is right, then Inkeroy are one possible consequence of us crossing this boundary. So the Inkeroy could possibly be us uh, um, in some respect. We're given up on any sort of normative ideals of or truth or what have you, and have literally just simply collapsed into this biohedonism that is to our moral sensibilities, absolutely horrific. And that's for me, the inquiry have always kind of represented the ugly consequences of on alien philosophy, uh, the, the fact that we are going to climb out of this dream that we've had of being exceptional in some way and discover that we are just simply material and that we will just simply chase fitness indicators, you know, via our technology to the point where we um, become something that our present selves can only be
1: horrified by well that's excellent that's certainly a horrifying thought to think of ourselves as the the
0: ink so in imagining alien philosophy you've got these convergians who are you know have some amount of sufficient uh convergent evolution with us they're they're somewhat similar to how our information processing works at least um, Is there any reason to assume that even if conscious cognition exists in convergians that it would feel the same to them as conscious cognition feels to us? I know that's kind of a strange question to ask because you can't Mm -hmm. even be sure that another person's, uh, you know, consciousness exists or feels the same as yours, but we tend to assume that feeling like a human, you know, it feels sort of like one thing mostly. Uh, we could be wrong about that, but is it possible to imagine radically different subjectivities, not just radically different behavior throughout the universe?
2: I mean, I'd argue that it's not possible to imagine. I think it's just a lot more complicated than, than people would give it credence. And I think all you have to do is look at the human case to see, that, that um, has to be the case. Just think of the difference uh, between different philosophers in the phenomenological tradition, like Heidegger, uh, Merleau Ponty, uh, Sartre, um, Husserl, Schutz, uh, Gadamer. I mean, if you look at all these different philosophers and all the different interpretations they've given of the fundamental nature of experience. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, some cases they're similar. They certainly share similar commitments. But there's a wild variance in how human subjective experience is described. So given that we have difficulty even pinpointing <laughs> what it's like to be a human, the notion of being able to understand what it's like to be an alien has got to be that much more difficult. And so one of the things I try to argue in that paper is, is that you really, even if you can't say what it would be like, what you could say is what kinds of information they'd have access to and what kinds of information they wouldn't have access to mm-hmm. and what kinds of problems they potentially might into as the ability to see their own neglect structure, to understand what it was they're neglecting. So, to give a strange answer to your question, I mean I think you can you can say things about the shape of an alien experience, even if you can 't say much of anything about the quality of of that experience.
0: yeah, one possible idea I had here was I, I was wondering if you think it would make a difference in the evolution of an alien philosophy if it occurred in a species that subjectively just had much less of a self-world distinction than we have. You know, we think of ourselves Mm -hmm. as in the universe rather than being the universe but of course we are the universe the universe is in a small part embodied in us and in the brains Mm -hmm. that generate our consciousness um we we just don't feel that way yet there are you know there are meditative exercises like you can do meditation that's specifically aimed at trying to get you into that state of mind where you feel like you are the universe you just are the world you are experience and i don't wonder that's an artifact right I mean right uh, it's not an apprehension it 's an artifact exactly uh, so i I wonder if you know if you imagine an alien species that doesn't naturally possess this self world distinction that just feels that it is the universe. Could we imagine it would generate a radically different type of ontology of the universe of what it means to be and all of the, the socially derived philosophy, the metaethics and everything like that?
2: Yeah. And, and I think this is I mean, I think this is actually a, a fascinating question. I mean, I've, I've cracked my skull open against it a couple of times now. And uh, um, I mean, what I think is the case, I like, I think metacognition, it doesn't matter where you are in the universe metacognition is expensive. And if metacognition is expensive everywhere you go in the universe, um, it is going to be hard, very, very hard, for an alien species to intuit its own continuity with its own environments. So, I mean, they're going to be stuck relying on simple heuristics in some way, shape, or form. And if they don't develop the metacognitive capacity to be intuitively uh, deduce you know the fractionate heuristic nature of their own metacognitive capacities they're going to be duped the same way we've been duped into thinking that the information they're getting is sufficient to draw conclusions and and uh I, mean, I think about human philosophy how strange it is. I mean, we've been asking the same bloody questions for thousands of years. <laughs> thousands of years, no answers. No answers. I mean, you know, really that's madness, isn't it? Doing mean, the same thing and expecting a different result. <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, I mean I know each philosopher tweaks something along the way and they think that tweak is going to give them a different result, but but it really is you know a paradigm for madness if you if you think about philosophy in those terms. Traditional, intentional philosophy, reflection on the soul. Um, uh, I think that just simply follows from the biological expense of metacognition. So that you can have an alien species realize their continuity with nature but there will be some point in their past where they assume the same kinds or similar kinds of exceptionalism as we have, where they think that they're actually something apart simply because they lack the metacognitive ability to actually uh, cognize themselves as continuous with their environments. You see, I mean, think about choice, for instance. There's just nothing intuitively obvious. Truth. But they're just they're physically impossible when you consider it in light of causal cognition. Um, like the reason we believe in choices is simply that we have no way of intuiting any causal provenance for anything that happens inside of our beings. <laughs> <laughs> and that'll be the case for any alien species whatsoever. So they're going to be blind to the causal provenance that um, holds them continuous with the greater circuit of nature so and i think you know that that first move the move that humans made oh well we must be something apart from nature we must be something exceptional something outside transcendent anomalous autonomous what have you i think that is going to be something any intelligent species working through the bugs of its metacognitive uh, capacities is going to uh,
1: encounter. Awesome. Now, as as we've been talking about uh, crash scenarios, uh, alien philosophy, uh, it's interesting to to think back on uh, the books of the the Second Apocalypse Saga, and you know, and, and see how this is is utilized uh, uh, throughout the books. Because uh, you know, th- this fantasy series is, has been the, the playground for your ideas uh, for so long here, and it's uh, generally classified as as fantasy. Yourself classified as fantasy. So, I wanted to ask in your in advance of uh, your recent uh, uh AMA on Reddit you stated quote if god is dead then fantasy is his grave uh can you expand on that for our audience
2: um yes yes sure i, I mean I, I, the uh AMA uh, organizers um uh they give you a fact sheet and the fact sheet the first thing the fact sheet uh, uh recommends is that you come up with some something jaunty and light <laughs> to introduce your AMA and i'm just such a contrarian so <laughs> first thing that jumped in my head. and uh, <laughs> But they, so it was you know, and very serious at the same time. It, it's serious insofar as it makes a reference, of course, to Nietzsche's famous claim that God is dead. And that's usually taken as uh, uh, an emblem for uh, basically the way in which enlightenment reason collapses into nihilism. And uh, um, so in that sense, that claim is very serious. If God is dead, then fantasy is his grave. Um, if you see the death of God as the problem of nihilism, then fantasy actually becomes the greatest place in the world to try to understand what the role of nihilism in contemporary society is. Fantasy worlds are fantasy worlds because they resemble scriptural scriptural worlds. The more your world looks like Vedic uh, India or biblical Israel or, or uh, Homeric, the more readily your world will be identified as fantasy. Why is that? Well, in all worlds, meaning is objective. <laughs> Morality is objective. There's a fact of the matter when it comes to right or wrong. You know, um, uh, intentions are objective. All these things have objective existence. And that's what cues them as being fantastic. Now, that's for me, that's crazy. For me, that makes fantasy the canary in the coal mine. Fantasy is where we can actually see meaning die (laughs) in our culture. We see all these worlds. That science has rendered factually irrelevant, you know, recreated over and over and over again like for the enjoyment and edification of millions, millions of readers worldwide. And, uh, um, uh, that statement is just simply meant to encapsulate that, uh, that, uh, you know, we can look at fantasy not as a throwaway escapist, uh, um, Culturally uh, retrograde uh, um, mode of entertainment, you know, that's ideologically trammelled in how many ways. Um, we can look at fantasy as actually the very cutting edge <laughs> of where human thought and nihilism, you know, um, our own the fact of our own material nature, come into conflict. Fantasy is the spark, you know, when when that flint and, and that iron are struck.
0: So, Scott, if you see fantasy embodying um, I don't know, some of the meaning structures that we used to get from mythology and religion, I wonder if you see a kind of parallelism uh, in, in modern fantasy of the different types of meaning and ethical uh, structures that you would get from different ancient mythologies. One thing that I think of is like the the mythological uh world that has a virtue ethic versus the one that has a moral ethic. Uh I don't mm-hmm. know if you might consider this like Greek mythology versus Buddhism or something mm-hmm. where where in one you have a you know an ethic that's about being great and in another one an ethic that's about being good. Do you see this paralleled in modern fantasy?
2: I mean fantasy like any other um fictional platform in which to explore ideas. Um, it just it really just sort of you know um rips the windows out and kicks the doors down right I mean you really can go almost any direction you want Stephen Shaviro, who's a uh uh fantastic cultural uh um, critic uh who teaches out of uh Wayne State University, he has a book called Discognition where he literally um uh argues that fiction is or has become um, the primary platform for being able to uh, explore philosophical ideas for this very reason. The fact that you can actually contrast the virtue um, ethics to uh, a, a more uh, um, authoritarian ethics, right? The fact that you can uh, ask questions like, what is the meaning of life <laughs> without it just simply collapsing into a joke? what happens uh, um, outside of fiction, it seems. Um, I mean, either you think of meaning of life, what part of the bookstore do you go to to discover the meaning of life? You don't go to the science section. You don't go to the philosophy section. You go to the New Age cult section. (laughs) Um, Fiction gives you that freedom to actually show that No, I don't care what your a priori intuitions tell you. We can actually build a plausible narrative as to you know what would come of the death of meaning. For instance, Um, it it just uh, provides a uh, a platform that allows you to blow past all of these philosophical constraints and uh, explore things without, uh, having to, you know, worry about, uh, being, uh, lectured by pendants, you know, on, uh, on your, uh, ignorance regarding this or
1: that. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to jump right back in to the conversation. Now, Scott, you've uh, you've mentioned that among other works, uh, Frank Herbert's Dune influenced your your fantasy fiction. Uh, what's your take on Frank's run of Dune books, and were there any lessons there that informed your own world building and approach to a multi volume series?
2: Yeah, and this is a, a very good question. I mean, because it, it actually my my experience reading Dune it probably is is one of the has had the biggest influence on on uh, my. Uh, um discipline writing these books over uh, over the past uh decade um I mean I, so my experience reading dune was I read dune blew me away, absolutely blew me away and so what do i what do uh, I do I go out and I buy children of dune I go out by god emperor and, and dune Messiah, and I read them in order and god emperor and lost me on Dune in, in, and I, I could just feel that, uh, I just had a feeling that he had kind of lost focus, uh, um, lost the, the spark that drove the original vision. And so for me, reading Dune was sort of a, a process of being disappointed in, in um, what I thought was his commitment to, to the vision. So when I set out and started these books, I'll never forget. I mean, Darkness that came before, I'd come out. I think it was two thousand four, two thousand three. I found myself having lunch with one of my uh, idols, uh, um, uh, as a younger man, anyways, um, Guy K. And uh, we were on, uh, uh, we're in Greektown in Toronto, and he asked me about my uh, next book, and I told him it was a sequel. And he said, well, how many sequels do you have planned? And I said, well, I think nine. <laughs> and he literally said, the last thing, this is another multi-volume epic fantasy. <laughs> and uh, no, my, uh, my heart did not sink to the, through the bottom of my shoes. <laughs> I said, no, I think that what the world really needs Is a multi-volume epic fantasy that does not lose sight of its vision, guy. (laughs) 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 And uh, um, and so that's the thing. I I mean, I was a young writer writing the Prince of Nothing and the Warrior Prophet. I mean, I was teaching at the time, and uh, um, the Thousandfold Thought even more so. I really felt the pressure to actually write those books. Um, inside of my delivery dates. And, uh, um, I think both those books actually suffer for it. And I think the vision suffered for it. Um, I still think I I still love the books, but I would love to rewrite them as well. Um, moving into the aspect emperor, I I decided, no, I mean, that's a problem. I committed to the vision from the very beginning. And that means I just let the vision call the, call the shots. And so, you know, with, uh, the Judging Eye, and The White Luck Warrior, and then, of course, the final volume of The Aspect Emperor, calving into two, that was just exactly what had happened. You know, Rather than worry about what my agent would say or what my editors would say, and I hate to say it, my, my readers, I thought, you know what? Everyone will be better served if the vision's better served because really that's what people are signing on for. Right? They want to follow this story, one story, all the way through to the conclusion. They don't want it to turn into a different story. They don't want it to suffer because of my, you know I mean I spend ten thousand hours with these characters. I hate them at times. <laughs> you know, readers readers spend, you know, a few dozen hours with them. And they, they don't get tired of them the way a writer does. And so um really all along that that experience reading Dune has really sort of informed my decision making. You know, if I'm hating this character, I'll stop writing. (laughs) I'm not going to force it, right? I know I love that character. I'm just tired of that character right now. I'm not going to invent a new character, right? Because I'd just be freshening things up for me. My writer, my readers, they don't want a new character. They just want to see what happens to this character, this beloved character or hated character or what have you. And uh, um, yeah, so my whole MO kind of... Uh, became one of sit back uh, let the story tell itself the way it needs to be told and um, I think that's part of the reason why I just feel so supremely confident (laughs) in these final two books (laughs) I know there's people who disagree there always is but (laughs) but uh, I really feel like I I really feel like I accomplished that uh, promise I made to all those years back in greek
1: town <laughs> well i really enjoyed uh, the most recent one and i'm looking forward very much so to, uh, to the unholy consult uh, coming out uh, this summer correct yeah. yes yes yeah so hopefully you agree with me <laughs> hopefully you think it, it, you think it works so it's oh, yeah. a risky
2: series right i mean I uh, oh, certainly a lot of risk
1: but- i always feel uh it's, it's a risky scenario uh, reading one of your books because i don't know to what extent you're going to damage my psyche a little bit you know or or force me (laughs) Uh, so much fantasy takes one out of oneself you know and uh and Mm -hmm. and serves as as at times just pure escapism but Mm -hmm. but your work always manages to sort of do both at the same time so i'm able to uh, to escape into uh dark rich imagined world but then also you're forcing me to ask at times troubling questions about myself and about uh, uh humanity in general
2: yeah that's the goal I, I mean that's just what you just said there that's writer's gold so, <laughs> I mean, uh, that's what i'm aiming for what i'm trying to always trying to do is to try to uh immerse and uh and push out <laughs> at the exact same time it's tough. it doesn't work for a lot of readers it's true
1: now, you've mentioned in interviews before how you might have written some aspects of Neuropath differently if you'd finished it after the birth of your daughter. Uh, has becoming yeah. a father affected the arc of the Second Apocalypse Saga?
2: Um, well, I certainly hope not. I, I mean, uh, so with the Second Apocalypse Saga, uh, the, the idea came to me when I was 17 years old, the, the basic narrative idea. And it's actually remarkably unchanged. I mean, it's, it, given the fact that it's you know sort of soaked up, so much of um, my education, basically, you know, all those years in university, you know, studying literature and then all those years studying uh, um, history, philosophy, and then all these years now uh, soaking up uh, cognitive science. Um, It's still that, that narrative, which ends at the end of the unholy consult is, is still the same. So I even dug out. For the for a couple of the final scenes of uh the Holy Console, I even dug out material that I had written almost twenty years ago <laughs> to rework wow. to put into the end of the book and that was really exciting for me i mean it uh um the fact that uh you know when you aim at a destin at a far far away destination. Um, And when the journey is as sort of fraught with uh, reversals in this direction as uh, as this journey has been for me, um, when you actually arrive at your destination, I sometimes wonder, this must be what a nuclear missile feels like when it actually (laughs) hits its target. (laughs) I mean, it just doesn't seem possible that you can actually arrive at the place you set out to arrive. And uh, um, I, I really feel as though I've... Closed the, uh, um, the deal when it comes to that first 17-year-old idea. So there's more to come. There's more to come yet,
0: but... I'm interested in something you mentioned briefly in the paper, which is uh, Susan Schneider's idea that if we encounter alien intelligence it's less likely to be uh, biological intelligence and more likely to be machine intelligence or or what you might call more broadly post biological intelligence mm-hmm. um so i i assumed based on the way you mentioned it that you agree with that would you agree with that and what do you think about oh,
2: that oh yeah yeah no i i think i think, uh, I, I think uh, the argument's pretty Ironclad. I mean, if you just look at where we stand in terms of our ability to uh, travel between the stars and where we stand in terms of our ability to uh, manipulate uh, our biology and uh, um, uh, basically offload um, cognition onto uh, um, our machinic artifacts, I I think it seems pretty clear that the transition from biology to post-biology is actually something that uh, um, becomes more technically feasible um, uh, earlier than uh, interstellar travel. Uh,
1: Another question that that comes to mind, and this might be just... Too specific, and uh, I'm you know tugging at something that's supposed to remain mysterious. Uh, but uh, there's a there's a scene in I believe it's the Judging Eye where uh, the characters are walking through the ruins of the non men, and uh, it's and and, and uh, you do a wonderful job just explaining the their artistic style, their their use of sculpture, and I believe it's mentioned that the the non men cannot see paintings, uh, and. I, the, 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 one of the reasons they they depend on sculpture. Um, c- can you elaborate on, on that at all, or is that meant to be sort of a mysterious cipher?
2: You always want to distinguish your your various uh, um, races and species that you uh, create in uh, um, speculative fiction, and um, this notion of uh, non men not being able to see visual two dimensional visual representations is is sort of just like a textural textural detail along those lines, but it actually does have uh, a rationale. I mean, the idea is that, um, I mean, just think of uh, the uh, cavemen in Chauvet in France um, actually uh, drawing, you know, their uh, charcoal-stained fingers across the cave wall for the first time and realizing they can see a shape in that and experiment Right. Turns out for humans, we can actually see horses and bison and figures of humans uh, um, given very, very small amount of visual information. Uh, Finger coverage in charcoal uh, dragged across a cave wall is enough for us to be able to recognize a lion or a horse. Um, Famous horses of Chauvet are are a wonderful example of that. Um, For non-men, their ability... You know, to cue the definition of scenes um, just simply requires a bit more information, and in particular, it requires um, depth information. So they can see representations the way we can. It's, it, they just have difficulty with two dimensions just simply because those, the amount of information that is given in a two dimensional uh, representation. Simply isn't enough to actually cue the cognitive systems involved in recognizing horses and tigers and what have you. So, so there's a, a kind of, I mean, it's just one of many ways in which you know my blind brain theory uh, um, has sort of you know nuanced the the, uh, the background and the landscape of, uh, of the novels.
1: And the blind brain theory, um, I don't know if you want to elaborate uh, here, but this is basically the idea of uh, getting down to the, the, the idea that the brain cannot perceive itself, and that's one of the big stumbling blocks to understanding ourselves and our place in the world, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. It, it's just um, basically
2: uh, the description I gave earlier, this notion of uh, of, uh Metacognition being largely, if almost utterly blind as to the brain's own operations. And, uh, um, and more importantly, being blind to that blindness. And so being convinced that it actually can see its own operations. And then that's the explanation for why, you know, we have this madness called philosophy where we simply ask the same questions over and over again, assuming
1: there's answers and there never is. I know in past interviews you've uh, you, you've referred to the, the ending of Neuropath, which no spoilers for anyone, but it's a it's a particularly bleak ending in many ways, and you've uh, you've you've said that you might have written that differently uh, if you had written it after the birth of your daughter.
2: Yeah, yeah, I almost certainly would have written it differently. Almost certainly would have. It's a hard book to read. I, I mean, I had a fan. Like, I don't recommend the book, actually. I, I've stopped recommending the book to people. I, I've had good friends um, email me, you know, they've waited a couple of years before reading the book and they've read the book. And they basically said, I wish I hadn't read this book. I, I, uh, I've been feeling depressed for weeks.
1: <laughs> I, I, I found it a depressing but fulfilling read, um. I, I I do occasionally recommend it to people uh, who I think... Uh, you gave me family. a copy, Robert. I know, I, I gave no you a copy of it. <laughs> now, um, speaking of parenthood and, and dark stories, uh, I assume reading plays a big role in your household. Uh, what's the darkest children's book you've found yourself reading to your daughter? Uh, and is there a particular genre book you're looking forward to being able to read with her?
2: Well, I mean, I'm, I'm really looking forward to being able to read The Hobbit with her. I mean, The Hobbit was a uh, watershed uh, read for me. And uh, um, the idea of uh, actually being able to share that with my daughter makes me feel giddy. I mean, it's, it's uh, crazy. I, mean, I would put balloons and streamers up or something like that. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> and it's a pretty dark book. But I mean, all the all, all the uh, Brothers Grimm fairy tales, Mother Goose fairy tales. I mean, we have um, a couple collections, and I read them to my daughter and my wife. Uh, would prefer that I not read them just simply because they're so strange and, uh, and violent, right? I mean, uh, Hansel and Gretel, like, holy moly, what a story that is. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and uh, um, I, I, uh, I worry that uh, as a culture, we're really, we're, we're really losing faith in uh, our, our children's ability to uh, uh, deal with uh, darkness and uh, unsettling thoughts. And uh, I, I actually think that that's a that's a huge social problem moving forward.
0: I remember yearning for that kind of stuff when I was a kid. I remember when I was a little kid, I, <laughs> I wanted more dark. I, I was like not satisfied with how dark and disturbing and weird the children's stories I was supplied with were.
2: Ask me what my favorite Bible story is.
0: <laughs> what is Growing your up. favorite Bible story?
2: <laughs> my- Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, wow. I, mean, I, I, I just thought that was the coolest story ever. I mean, uh, um, obviously, it's not a cool story at all. <laughs> well,
1: yeah, and plus they you have know, these
2: illustrations, a lot of daughters seducing him in the cave afterwards. <laughs> I mean, it's a downright creepy story, but those are the kinds of things I liked. And, uh, I mean, I grew up uh, in a religious household. Those are the things that... Uh, Uh, caught my attention and
1: held it (laughs) all right so one last question here and this is just an idle curiosity here so i've long wondered if uh a wrong and a rocks the 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 last living in in your books are they at all a wink at kang and kodos on the simpsons not that they have anything to do with each other except the fact that they're pairs of aliens uh
2: yeah uh um yeah, no, they're not. But it's gonna be pretty <laughs> hard to uh, move forward. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that oh. little piece of pollution there. I mean, uh...
1: <laughs> or maybe it, it just changes the Simpsons. It elevates the Simpsons rather than uh, yeah, yeah.
2: yeah uh, As if uh, Simpsons is the only immovable object in the universe. I, uh, I, I think at this point, anyway. <laughs> it's funny. I like I stopped reading um uh message board uh, banter about my books and stuff. And it's just simply, just simply um to keep the slate clean. I, I mm-hmm. just find, you know, people people will so will, will mention something to you and it'll be like, Hey, that's a great bloody idea. <laughs> Actually better than the idea I had. <laughs> and uh um, I mean it may feel that way. Your own, my own ideas always feel old to me, right? <laughs> Um, I get I to try to uh, shelter myself from that a bit just so I don't get uh, too much interference when it comes to following through the original vision that I went on and on about.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, I can imagine where you definitely want to plow ahead uh, as much as possible towards that original vision without uh, polluting it uh, in any way you know, based yeah. on fan interaction.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, the big thing is, is if you, like I say, uh, you spend 10,000 hours with these characters and this narrative and stuff, and um, the tendency is to... Uh, you make it baroque, right? I mean, there's just so many ways in which an author's exhaustion with the project ends up creeping into that project. And so, I, for me, it, it, uh, so much of it just comes down to uh, being mindful of my own exhaustion. I mean, how I feel about my own material, and you know, making sure I'm in the right place uh, while I'm working on the books, so that the, the books actually express, you know, what it is I want them to.
1: Well, on that note, thanks again for chatting with us, uh, for answering our questions. Your books are all available uh, right now. The, uh, the all the books in the uh, Second Apocalypse Saga, uh, Disciple of the Dog, Neuropath, you know, for the brave, I guess, based on our discussions of it here, and uh, the Unholy Consult, the, the the latest book in the uh, Second Apocalypse Saga, coming out this summer.
2: This summer, yeah, and it's uh, the culmination of uh, what what feels like a lifelong quest for me now. So, uh, uh, basically, uh, adolescent narrative that, uh, I've, uh, managed to pursue through, you know, graduate degrees and job changes and strangely enough, the world, the world just keeps Trying to make my horrific vision come true, so <laughs> it feels like it's only become more relevant um, now than it, than it was uh, back at the turn of the millennium when I first uh, got serious about publishing.
1: And uh, if anyone out there wants to follow you, you're uh, you're on social media, but also your blog, uh, Three Pound Brain, uh, c- correct, is a, is a great way to just sort of keep up with your your, yeah, three your pound regular brain is ideas. A place to...
2: To uh, pester me with uh, with questions and whatnot, um, or just simply shoot uh, shoot me an email. You'll find my email on my blog. Uh, but just uh, Google three pound brain and uh, Baker, and you'll you'll find yourself at uh, my profane
1: doorstep soon enough. All right, thanks, Scott. Thanks, Scott. <laughs> Thank you, guys. <sighs> So there you have it. Thanks again to R. Scott Baker for taking time out of his day to chat with us about alien philosophy and his dark fantasy works. It was really a treat for me uh, to finally uh, t- chat with R. Scott Baker throw out a few questions here and there I tried to limit my geeky questions in this interview <laughs> but I, I worked in one or two there again the first six books in the second apocalypse saga are out there and uh, the next one The Unholy Consult comes out July 11th from Overlook Press if you want to learn more about R. Scott Baker and follow him uh, his blog Three Pound Brain is rsbaker.wordpress.com he's also online com, and if you want to follow him on Twitter, he is the Devil's Chirp. That's just one word, of course, the Devil's Chirp. And finally, I want to drive home again that uh, one of the things that I really love about his work is that I'm able to, on one hand, escape into just this this wonderful dark fantasy world with all of its magic and intrigue, all of it just just so perfectly uh, created for the reader and then at the same time he's throwing in all of these uh these thought provoking notions about human experience and identity motivation and cognition that really you know challenges you and and, and forces you to, to to look hard into the mirror and i wanted to just share one more quick quote from him this is from his book the judging eye uh, that's in the dark uh, the, the second apocalypse saga he says i remember asking a wise man once why do men fear the dark because darkness he told me is ign- Ignorance made visible. And do men despise ignorance, I ask? No, he said. They prize it above all things. All things. But only so long as it remains invisible. All right. And uh, again, we'll throw all those links on the landing page for this episode at stufftoblowyourmind.com. And if you want to check out more of our work, that's where you'll also find it. You'll find blog posts. You'll find podcasts. You'll find videos. Links out to our various social media accounts, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram. We are on all those things.
0: And if you want to. make your ignorance visible to us, you can email us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. (laughs)